1 Corinthians 15 says our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. God, your word says to, to take joy that our names are written in heaven's book. Lord, I pray that today we would rejoice in the fact that you have our name written down. Lord Jesus, that while we may, we may be buried in brokenness, that we may be buried in weakness, Lord, that your truth and what you accomplished on the cross says that we can be raised to new life in victory and in glory. God, whether we feel that in a physical way, Lord, where, where we are, are seeing being buried in brokenness, physically manifesting itself in our lives, whether it's emotionally or mentally or spiritually, Lord, where we feel like we are buried in brokenness. God, can we rest in this truth that you are a God that says that you will raise us to life in glory. God, I am so excited to dig into the name of Jesus today. Lord, the powerful name, a name above all names that made all of these things possible. Father God, we ask simply this morning that your Holy Spirit would invade us. God, that it would confront us with new truth. Lord, and that it would propel us to look more and more like your Son. God, I thank you so much for the ways that you are answering prayers in our church. God, in our families. Lord, I thank you for the ways that, that you are leading us to a new understanding of what it looks like to trust you. God, I ask this morning that that would be just what this is, learning new ways to trust you. God, we love you so much, and we thank you that you have anchor this morning. It's in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name, Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. 
There is something about the name of Jesus. There is something bigger happening when we speak the name of Jesus. And in the quietness of a sanctuary like this, it's undeniable that there's something bigger happening. What is it about that name? You know that the church wants to proclaim it, that the devil wants to profane it, that demons shudder at the very mention of it. What is it about the name of Jesus? I'm really excited this morning because on our journey through Puzzled with the Bible, we have now reached the turning point of all of history. Jesus. Say his name with me this morning. Jesus. Uh, Scripture says some pretty heavy things about the name of Jesus. Acts 4 verse 12, it says, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus. Uh, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except for through me. And those are some radical statements um, because they force us to answer a question. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? This morning, I got no tricks up my sleeve. At the end of today, I'm going to ask you, what will you do with Jesus? Because when we look at the life and the sacrifice of Christ, that is all that we can ask ourselves is what will we do with Jesus? The Bible will tell you that he was the turning point of history. We've talked through this graphic a few times, and I want to do it again this morning. We talked about how in the beginning, God and man was with God in the garden. How sin and Satan were introduced in the garden and already in Genesis chapter 3. The world is judged and purified at the Tower of Babel. The world unites, and then... God's holy people, the 12 tribes of Israel. And we see this happening where Abraham is promised that there will be a Messiah from his lineage. And then in the, the 12 tribes of Israel, we see Moses, where God says, be holy like I am holy. And then we see the path and the way that we ought to be holy through the tabernacle that we discussed last week. And then 400 years of silence happened between this piece and the next. Much like the Israelites had to wait 400 years for Moses to step onto the scene, humanity waits while God is silent. And then the whisper of a name starts to come up. Jesus, Master, Savior, Messiah. And we see that in John, uh, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and if we had a sticker, we would say, you are here this morning, and God's holy people, and the 12 disciples, and then we see that this picture mirrors itself throughout all of scripture, where the world unites again, it will be judged and purified, sin and Satan will exit, and God and redeemed man will be in paradise. Our God is incredibly on time and on purpose, and Jesus Christ is absolutely no exception to that. Uh, there are 50 prophecies about Jesus, at least. 50 prophecies in the Old Testament for him to fulfill. In order for him to fulfill those 50 prophecies, actually, let's not say 50. If he were to perform eight of them, like eight, okay? Eight prophecies. 
The likelihood of that is one in a trillion. One in a trillion. Like, can you even wrap your head around trillion, okay? <laughs> a trillion is completely unimaginable. So I'll give you an image of what that would look like. Take the state of Texas and cover it in two feet deep worth of quarters. So like up to your knees, worth of quarters. Maybe not everybody's knees, but my knees, I'm short. <laughs> up to your knees of quarters. And then you take one quarter and you write Messiah on it and you chuck it into the center of Texas. Then you say to this guy who somehow volunteered for this position, you say, I'm gonna blindfold you. I want you to walk throughout Texas and whenever you feel like it, bend over and grab one quarter and if he grabbed the one that says Messiah, he has now fulfilled eight prophecies. That's insane. And that's only eight of them. Uh, there were 50. Like, uh, he will be born in Bethlehem. He will be born of a virgin out of Egypt. His ministry will be out of Galilee. He will be betrayed by a friend. He will be sold for 30 pieces. He will be killed on a tree. He will be pierced, but his legs won't be broken. And all these prophecies, a lot of them come centuries before Jesus even steps on the scene. Uh, take crucifixion, for example. It was prophesied that the Messiah would be crucified 400 years before crucifixion existed. Uh, it was prophesied that our God, that our Messiah would be crucified and die on a tree. 400 years prior to that even being a reality in life. We talked about the impossibles of Scripture last week, and I'm going to give you one more. It is impossible for Jesus not to be the Messiah. All of Scripture points and proves that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture, of prophecy. And it's beautiful in this moment because what we realize is that while it is impossible for Jesus not to be the Messiah, there are a lot of things that Christ made possible through his work on the cross. And so I want to give you three possibles today that Christ made a reality for us. And the first possible is the possible of grace. Now I heard a, a joke this week that I'm going to try out on you guys. Um, I heard a guy made it all the way to heaven, and he's sitting at the pearly gates, and St. Peter's sitting there, and he says, look, this is how it's going to work. You need 100 points to enter those beautiful gates behind me. <laughs> you tell me what you've done with your life, and I will tally up the points, and we'll see how it pans out. The guy's like, oh, well, this should be pretty easy. So he says, well, I was married to the same woman for 50 years. I loved her with all my heart, and I never cheated on her. He's like, wow, you don't hear about love like that anymore, do you? That should be good for two points. <laughs> and the guy's like, okay. Uh, 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 well, I was really involved in my church. You know, I served, I, I gave my money, I showed up on all the work days. You know, I was there early, I left late. And then Peter's like, man, that's some really good stuff. That's good at least for one point. And he writes it down, and the guy starts sweating. And he says, okay, okay, uh, well, I started a soup kitchen in my city. And actually, I even started a homeless shelter for, for veterans. We love veterans. I started a homeless shelter. And he says, man, that is some inspiring stuff. That's at least two points right there. That's good. That's good. And he says, five points? At this rate, the only way I'm going to get in is by the grace of God. And he says, bingo! 
100 points, welcome on in. <laughs> the grace of God is made possible through Jesus. Uh, the impossible, of we talked about last week, of holy meeting unholy is like a match in the box itself. And Jesus brought about grace. It talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. Not by the works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's handiwork. And we don't get any of the credit, which is incredible news because like the Israelites, gosh, I mess up all the time. <laughs> I don't know about you. Do you ever mess up? <laughs> like, I, I am really sunburnt this morning. I am physically and actually a hot mess, okay? <laughs> like, and I need grace. And if you don't know that you need grace, you at least know that your neighbor needs grace, right? Um, so turn to your neighbor and tell them you need grace, okay? Just tell them you need grace. Yeah, and by some of you, like how you said that, you prove that you also need grace, okay? <laughs> we all need grace, uh, not from anything that we could produce or do. And that's the beauty of Jesus, is that he came near and dwelt with sinners. The most perfect act of grace. It's like getting scolded by your mom and having her come up to you and put her arm around your your neck, not like this, like this, <laughs> and saying that it's okay. <laughs> grace. Jesus made grace possible. The second possible that he made was the possible of salvation. For it is by grace that you have been saved. From the beginning of time with Adam and Eve, the Lord said that sin would result in death. We talked about this in the first week. He said that it would result in physical death itself. It would result in spiritual death. It would result in uh, their relationship with the Lord dying. And you'd say, well, how does that pan out for me to be saved? Which I'm so, I'm blessed that you asked that. Uh, it actually comes in the tabernacle that we talked about last week. So I have a picture of the tabernacle for you to look at as kind of a refresher. Yeah. And we remember last week, there was a perimeter around the tabernacle. It was a huge white perimeter where we were said to keep out and only enter in specific ways. Now, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it would be much like us being at the entrance of the tabernacle, which, for all intents and purposes, is going to be right here today. And at this point, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now in Jewish culture, this would have been absolutely impactful. Uh, because the sacrificial system was a part of their every single day life. And so when he says, here comes the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We go back to our tabernacle image where a priest would stand at the entrance of the tabernacle and inspect the lamb to make that sure that it was spotless. Jesus had to be perfect and without sin in order to take this position. And it, Jesus took himself and walked all the way to the slaughtering table. 
Matthew 26, verse 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I don't know if you guys remember from last week, but without the shedding of blood, there is what? No forgiveness of sins. Chapter 27. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify him. Send him to the slaughtering table. And even though they didn't realize what was happening then, they sent Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, to the slaughtering table. Verse 28, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on. Then they led him away to crucify him. Now it was here at the slaughtering table that Jesus' life was stretched out. Not on a table, but on a cross. Uh, slaughtering table and cross are synonymous for us this pure and spotless lamb. And what would have to happen in the temple system is that I would have to set my hand on top of the head of the lamb and my guilt would transfer. Then it says uh, in John 3.16, will you read this one with me? For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, out, but have eternal life. What made that possible was the slaughtering table. What made that possible was Jesus going to the perimeter of how close we could get to God and making the march from the entrance to the slaughtering table. Let's read verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Jesus, like a lamb, the slaughtering table, gave up his life. Because the punishment of sin is death. And there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Jesus fulfills the tabernacle system, the sacrificial system. Then verse 51, At that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and we, you, you may remember this from last week. We talked about when he entered into the holy place, there would be a beautiful lamp, there would be a, a incense, and then there would also be the showbread. And behind them, there was a thick curtain. And behind the thick curtain was the holy of holies, where the presence of God rested and stayed. I have a picture of what this might have looked like when this happened. This would have been in the temple by now, which was the permanent structure of the tabernacle. This would not be a small feat to tear that fabric in half. And what happened is that it was torn in half, symbolizing that the presence of God had flooded and that we could be invited into his presence. No more bells on the robe and rope around the ankle to pull out the dead guy, you know? No more terror of the tabernacle. No, we were invited in to his presence. 
By the work of Jesus Christ, he gave us access. No longer would we have to go through the process. But we have to trust the moment where we put the hand on the head of the lamb and trust that he has our guilt. Matthew 28, verse 5, it says, The angel said to the woman, Don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just like he said. Come and see the place where he lay. He is risen, and he sits at the right hand of God, interceding for you and I. And this goes all the way back, and this is where I get a little nerdy. This goes all the way back to the beginning of time. Jesus deals with the original sin of Adam. Uh, He goes, and Abraham, when there is a Messiah promised through his lineage, he fulfills that prophecy. Uh, Then we go to Moses, where God says, be holy like I am holy. When we go to the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is our path to be holy before God, and he fulfills it. And with him, that's why it's the turning point of humanity. We said that the Old Testament was the old contract, and the new contract is the New Testament. He is the turning point of humanity because he institutes a new covenant with us. How beautiful is that? That Jesus saw every single aspect of humanity. He saw every single thing that we could not fulfill, and he fulfilled it in a single painful moment. God made three things possible that day. He made the possible of grace. He made the possible of salvation. Lastly, he made the possible of faith. We read this scripture already, Ephesians 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. I'll be honest with you. If you're going to follow Christ, it'll take faith. It'll be a lot like stepping off of a bridge not knowing where you're going to (laughs) land. It will take faith, but I'll be real. It will also take faith if you decide that Jesus isn't real. If you want to talk about the astronomical statistical problem with Jesus fulfilling 50 prophecies, there's some other statistics that we could probably have a conversation about. It takes faith to follow Jesus, but it takes faith to say that he is not the Son of God. And no matter how much knowledge that we pack up about this Jesus, about this God, at the end of the day, you and I have to decide for ourselves, will we follow him? Will we trust him? Will we place our hand on the head of the lamb and trust that it carries our guilt? When Jesus was hung at the slaughtering table, he made it possible for you and I to trust him. He made it possible for a new covenant, a new commitment, a new testament. And we ask the the question I started with, what are you going to do with Jesus? They asked this of the 12 disciples in Acts chapter 2, and Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are required of two things, to repent and be baptized. Repent literally means to make a 180-degree turn. That means if, if this is where life is going and this is where God is, I decide that I am going to turn away and pursue him with my life. 
And this happens in chronological order because if I'm not making this decision to turn away from the world and turn towards Jesus, baptism is a little shallow. Because baptism is to be immersed into the water and to come up in new life in Christ and to make a public statement that I am deciding to follow Jesus. In the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, they had a form of baptism. It was with the golden laver. I actually have a picture of that to remind you. This was where the priests would come and they would wash their hands and their feet, signifying that they were made holy in front of a holy God. And that's what Jesus calls us to do as well, to wash our hands and feet and to make a public statement about an inward work that I have decided to follow Jesus. Have you followed through on the new covenant? Have you made the decision that this is where my life was going, but I am going to turn and face him? Are you pursuing him with all you have and all that you could be? And have you been baptized? Have you been baptized in a moment in your life when maybe you could understand it and you could proclaim to the world that you have decided to follow Christ? Next week is Baptism Sunday, and I am really stinking stoked for that. (laughs) Um, So we are going to perform some baptisms here in this building. And it's going to signify a turning point in our lives where, where we have turned from the, what the world has to offer and towards Christ. Uh, if you have not been baptized before, I'd love to talk to you. If you have, and maybe you say it didn't really mean anything then, but I know that it means something now, uh, I'm going to have a meeting in the prayer room after church, and I would love, absolutely love the opportunity to talk to you about baptism and see how we can make that happen next Sunday. But before we close, I'm going to pray a prayer that maybe you have prayed before, uh, but one that I think is only fitting when we look at Jesus' sacrifice. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. Forgive me of my sin through Jesus' sacrifice and make me your temple. I commit to follow you in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.